Hello, Utah skiers and riders, and welcome to Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast. A big thanks to Utah's own Pixie and the Party Grass Boys for joining us all season long here on Last Chair. Last Chair is brought to you by High West Distillery, Utah's first legal distillery since 1870. High West is passionate about crafting delicious and distinctive whiskeys and helping people appreciate whiskey all in the context of our home right here in the American West. When you're in town, visit one of High West's locations in Park City and nearby Wanship. In our final last chair of the season, we welcome back two great episode sponsors. First off, my favorite outdoor store here in Park City, Jan's, your go-to shop for year-round outdoor recreation. And welcome back to White Pine Touring, Park City's ticket to the outdoors since 1972, providing top-of-the-line equipment and custom-guided tours. As skiers and snowboarders, we all share a passion for mountain landscapes. That feeling we love of sliding down snow-covered slopes is something we want to last forever. Sustainability is a complex topic, but one that is vital to all of us. What does the future hold in store, and what can we do as skiers and snowboarders? In today's episode of Last Chair, we'll talk with one of the industry's foremost strategists on how we can all work together to preserve our natural resources. David Perry cut his teeth working in the Canadian Rockies, from CMH heli skiing to Whistler Blackcomb, before his career took him to Colorado Ski Country and eventually Aspen Skiing Company. Today, as a leader for Altera Mountain Company, David is a highly respected climate advocate. For all of you who want to continue to enjoy our mountain passion, today's Last Chair podcast is an important listen. Join me now as Last Chair takes a look at sustainability, including our own roles, as we talk with David Perry of Altera Mountain Company. I'm happy to welcome my longtime friend David Perry to Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast. David, thanks for taking a little time on this beautiful spring day. Oh, it's great to talk to you, Tom. You know, it's uh, and to see you virtually. You know, it's uh, I always get excited to see people these days because I've been closed in like so many for so long and I've been getting a little squirrely here. Well, there's a whole different paradigm these days on how we communicate and how we see each other. David, I want to start out and just give a thanks to you and the entire Altera Mountain Company and everyone in the ski industry for getting us out there this winter and staying open all season. I know there were a lot of sacrifices to do that, but as skiers and snowboarders, we really appreciate that. Well, thanks, Tom. You know, it, yeah, it wasn't a given that we'd be able to keep all our resorts open all winter long. And, uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of colleagues in the industry and many people have worked really hard to make that happen, to keep it keep it safe and approachable. You know, there's been shutdowns in Europe, as you know, for ski areas. Uh, we had one shutdown in, in, in our, one of our Canadian resorts in Ontario. We couldn't run Canadian Mountain Holidays this winter, uh, the heli-ski operation, because of uh, group gatherings. But for the most part, we've been able to stay open. And we we're so happy that, you know, obviously in Utah, where we own Solitude and Deer Valley, and uh, our partners with some great mountains on the Icon Pass, uh, we're thrilled that, uh, you know, it's been been a solid winter, and uh, we're really happy about that. 
We're going to talk sustainability today, but before we get into that, I think everyone who's gone through life over the last year has learned a lot of new things, and businesses have tried new systems and alternative approaches to things, and I would imagine that Altera is really no different. You probably did some things this year where the learning is going to be, hey, we want to keep doing this. Uh, No question about it. You know, all security operators and a lot of businesses had to push themselves really, really hard this year to figure out how to operate safely and comfortably in, a, in an ever-changing environment. And so we had to adopt, like a lot of folks, a lot of different uh, procedures and operating uh, plans. And yeah, we've talked very much about, oh, we've learned things ourselves that we will keep for the long term, uh, post-pandemic. Uh, and yeah, there's been some very good learnings, which I think is, gonna, is ultimately going to make us more efficient. Uh, it's going to make the experience more seamless and, uh, and I think better for everybody. David, let's talk about your present role at Altera. Uh, you started, actually started the company as founding president and COO and now serve in an environmental role. What is your title now and what are your responsibilities with Altera? We started uh, in uh, well, August 1st, 2017 was when Altera was first formed. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's coming up on our fourth anniversary. Uh, and for the first two and a half years, yeah, I was the president and chief operating officer of Altera as we started to build the foundation of the company. And one of the things we, we really wanted to build into Altera's culture uh, right from the beginning was our commitment to ESG, uh, and that's environment, social, and governance. And so we took the opportunity as we got bigger and the operating role, frankly, I was traveling all the time and we took the opportunity for me to move over and take the ESG portfolio and build that for the first time in Altera. So I'm responsible for environmental sustainability, uh, social efforts like diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the governance of the company. Uh, so I'm an executive vice president of ESG and special projects and uh, coming up on uh, our th- almost fourth anniversary as a company. On the environmental part, we're talking sustainability today, but has that been a passion of yours personally as you've made your way around to different major resorts in North America? Yeah, very much so. You know, a lot of people have a a passion, and I think a lot of skiers and snowboarders and winter sports enthusiasts particularly have a passion for taking care of our environment. It's essential to what we do. I've had a longstanding love affair with our, our environment and our mountains. And it's interesting, you know, uh, prior to Altera, I was at Aspen Skiing Company where we did a lot on, on environmental sustainability. And even before that, when I came from Whistler Blackcomb in Canada, you know, it was a, it was a mainstay of our, our approach to, the, to maintaining and, and managing the, the whole resort. And so I've been a, a squeaky wheel about environmental sustainability and taking real action, meaningful action, on, on sustaining our environment over the years. And because I was a squeaky wheel within Altera, it's what you do, right? It's like you put your hand up and they say, well, you talk about it so much. Why don't you do it yourself? And so, uh, I mean, which is a great thing because I, I love uh, anything we can do to, you know, you know, as I say, I define sustainability uh, as being in business forever. And if we can be in the mountain resort business and the ski business forever, then uh, we've accomplished our mission. Uh, and that we can have a place for our children and grandchildren to to live the life that we love so much in the mountains. And that, that to me, there's nothing more important. 
David, you grew up in Canada in what is arguably one of the world's most amazingly beautiful locations in the Banff and the Lake Louise area. How did you initially develop this passion for the outdoors and for the mountain landscape? Well, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, I spent, you know, a good 10 years early on in in the ski resort business in, you know, the Banff Lake Louise area as I was putting myself through university. I was first, my very first job in the mountain resort business was given to me by Hans Moser, who was the founder of Heli Skiing, and he created Canadian Mountain Holidays. He hired me, I hate to say the date, but it was 1977. He gave me a job, and it was introduction to heli skiing. And people didn't know what heli skiing was back then. It, we had long, skinny skis that were stiff, and people, well, can I do it? Is it hard? And uh, the answer is, well, yes, <laughs> you can do it, and yes, it's hard. You know, Hans really was a mentor of mine and, and was a passionate in his day in the 60s and 70s uh, environmentalist, really. He didn't have that title back then, but he was so committed to bringing people into nature, into pristine mountain environments and having experiences that brought people together in those mountain environments. That's what he was all about. You know, he, he used to describe something, I'll, I'll butcher the German word that he used for it, but he calls it it's lodge magic. Right. So after you ski touring, you're out in the mountains for a day and you gather back in the lodge and there's that magic of being together where you have some food and maybe you have a drink. You tell some stories, you have some music, you know, and you and people are just warm and feeling good together. And I think that's something that's so important in our business uh, that we don't lose sight of the fact that that bringing people together in beautiful mountain environments is really at the core of what we do. Uh, so that that ethic was instilled in me early on. Uh, I mean, as a young kid, too, as you know, our family, I was one of six kids and, uh, you know, my parents would drag us around in a station wagon to go skiing. But, you know, really, it was Hans Moser uh, who instilled a real love of the mountains with me. And uh, I've carried that with me ever since. When you were up there, maybe coming off the helicopters and standing on those amazing alpine peaks, what was the feeling that you got that really helped to further instill this in you? Yeah, the feeling when you get uh, get on the top of a mountain, whether you've climbed up there yourself or you've taken a lift all or most of the way or you've uh, used some fossil fuels to get a helicopter to drop you. <laughs> that feeling when you get dropped at the top of the mountain, heli skiing, and then the helicopter leaves and you're all alone and you look around, it, it's, a, it's a powerful and, and moving feeling. You feel, I feel, frankly, I'm at one with the universe when I'm on the top of a mountain. Uh, it is my cathedral. You know, it is where I feel the most spiritually connected. Uh, I take a deep breath. I never get tired of it. I appreciate it every single time. And I feel like, oh, my gosh, I am the luckiest person in the world to be able to commune with nature uh, in this way, in this place. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there's nothing beats that feeling of being at the top of a mountain after the helicopter leaves you and you're standing there, maybe with a few friends uh, before you actually ski down. It's the best. No, it, it, it really is. It's what we all live for. And I was just up in the mountain yesterday and we all have those special places on the mountain that we want to go to, to not just slide down, but to just stand there for a minute and take in the scenery. But you, you had the opportunity, starting with Hans Moser, to work in the industry. And you, your career path took you to Whistler Blackcomb, to Aspen, and then to Altera. Talk a bit first, if you could, about your experience in Whistler Blackcomb. Yeah, you know, I arrived in uh, Whistler Blackcomb uh, 
1980, and it was basically the, the, the just after the first year that Blackcomb Mountain opened. It opened the same year as Beaver Creek, actually. Whistler Mountain had been there since 68, but Whistler, the village itself, was just on the map. And so, frankly, I moved from the Banff Lake Louise area, which I still love to this day, uh, to the Whistler Blackcomb area be, for opportunity, to be honest. That was a young uh, mountain town just coming out of the ground. And uh, there was a, a grand dream there to build a, a two mountain complex that could be one of the best in the world. And so I was fortunate enough to move there and be more or less on the ground floor of the, uh, of the development of, of Whistler Blackcomb and Whistler Village. Uh, I ended up spending in all 18 years there doing just about everything. You know, I started just frankly teaching and coaching uh, skiing and then quickly moved into a marketing role. Uh, so in the 80s, and, and uh, I, was, I was the marketing director at Blackcomb Mountain before Blackcomb and, and uh, Whistler merged into one operation. They were separately owned back then. And our job was to just build the place, make it as great as it could be, and put it on the world map. And, uh, you know, we were successful at that. You know, uh, I remember coming to Colorado, actually, to ski in the 80s, and it was 1988, as a matter of fact, and they came down to the, the World Cup event in Aspen in March of that year. And I remember riding up the chairlift and people asked me where I was from. And I said, well, I'm from uh, Whistler Blackcomb. And they go, oh, yeah, where's that? And these were skiers. And this is only 88. So it wasn't that long ago. And they really hadn't heard of, of Whistler, hadn't really popped up on the radar. And, you know, in the early 90s, I think it was 90, uh, 93 or 94, Ski Magazine had their cover, uh, said uh, they had their annual resort rankings. And they said, number one, Vail, because it was always number one back then. And number two said, you'll never guess. And of course, what people do, they open up the magazine, they go to the center spread, and it was this big double-page spread of the two mountains, Whistler and Blackcomb, that most people had never seen or heard of. And it rocketed to number two in skis rankings. And so, you know, from then on, you know, we were started to be on the world stage. And you know, whether it be from Japan or from Europe or certainly in the American audience, a lot of Americans started going up to, uh, to Canada then and experiencing Whistler Blackcomb. And frankly, Tom, it wasn't always a positive experience. I mean, newcomers to Whistler Blackcomb saw in the pictures Bluebird Sky and two big mountains. Well, you've been there a lot. You know it's not Bluebird very often up there. Uh, that's a coastal range mountain resort where you get fog and rain and wind and heavy snow and and, and sometimes it's it's beautiful and amazing so a lot of people went there for the first time and were disappointed they said oh my gosh it's raining and it's wet and it's foggy and i can't see and the snow so heavy uh but we had to actually turn that negative into a positive during that time at whistler blackcomb we had to make big the big mountain and the big weather and the big coastal rainforest and the big glaciers into an adventure story to see, are you, are you tough enough? Are you man and woman enough to handle this? If you are, come on up and give it a shot. And so we made it kind of a rite of passage. If you could go and ski Whistler and Blackcomb and, and handle it and be proud of it, then you were cool. And uh, we turned bad weather into cool. And, uh, and that, you know, Whistler then Blackcomb became, you know, hit 2 million skier days a year and became on the world stage. And, uh, and that's when I got recruited to move to Colorado uh, and uh, changed our family's life, which uh, we're forever grateful for because we still live in Colorado to this day. We raised our kids in Colorado 
and Mrs. Hall. Along the way, uh, David, when did the concept of sustainability and an industry responsibility, when did you see that starting to come in? I would say I was most aware uh, when I moved to Colorado. I mean, I had the foundation from Hans and from Whistler. But when I moved to Colorado in 2000, and I was traditionally the, the CEO of Colorado Ski Country USA, and then two years later, I moved over to Aspen Skiing Company and became uh, a chief operating officer. But Aspen had the first ever director of sustainability in the industry on staff at that time in the late 90s. It was 99, 98, 99 when they hired us a director of sustainability. And, uh, you know, the CEO at that time was Pat O'Donnell. And he had, was a, a, you know, former head of the Yosemite Institute and a, just a really uh, devoted environmentalist. And I gave him a lot of credit for pushing the envelope and bringing environmentalism into the ski resort business, uh, sometimes in a very unpopular way. Because Aspen's, you know, push on environmental sustainability has not always been well received within the industry. But I really gained an education about what environmental activism was uh, when I got to Colorado in 2000, 2002, uh, and realized that, you know what, we've got this pristine natural environment and we're not treating it with enough respect. And we're also, frankly, the true canaries in the coal mine. We are the people in the high mountain places that are witnessing the impacts of climate change firsthand. And uh, that's still the case today. Because we know as climate is changing, you know, people in high mountain places or in far north places in the Arctic are seeing and feeling the changes most dramatically. Uh, and, you know, we scurry around like Chicken Little a little bit saying, you know, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, we have to do something about this. And it's been really difficult to get people's attention on sustainability. But ski area operators, skiers and snowboarders, mountain lovers, they know it's happening. It's not a discussion. It's not an argument. Human-caused climate change has never been uh, really in much debate in mountain towns. And it still isn't today because we know. We see the shortening winters. We see the warming temperatures. We live and work and play in places where in January and February you would never see rain. Now you see rain. Even in Utah and Colorado mountains up high, you see rain in the middle of winter, which, you know, not that long ago that was a rare occurrence. So... You know, I really grabbed a hold of that environmental ethic in my early Aspen days. And uh, we really focused on doing what we could to green our own operations, as I call it, green our own house. Because if we could, you know, try to lecture people about climate change and get them to believe us, but we didn't, weren't running our own operation really responsibly, you know, we were hypocrites. And uh, we deserved to be called out. You know, people call it greenwashing. Like, well, who are you? Look at you. People are flying in on their private jets to ski in Aspen. They have a huge carbon footprint. And you're running lifts on electricity. And people are, you know, burning fossil fuels to get there. Like, what do you, you know, how can you talk about climate change? You know, you're a hypocrite. And you know what? They were right. It really takes us to be honest with ourselves first about our own failings and our own shortcomings as an industry and as skiers uh, before we can fix our our own operations, and then go out with a clear conscience and talk to others about what they can do. Uh, and so that's what the industry has been doing. And uh, we did it in Aspen. Aspen finally got to the point where we got on, got on 100% renewable energy. And it was a journey. Um, 
we tried a micro hydro plant on our snowmaking system, you know, on the pipes, reversing the pipes to run a little hydro system. And that worked, but it wasn't big enough. We tried putting a wind turbine on the top of snow mass above tree line to test it for wind to see if we could generate wind power. And the winds were too turbulent and too strong. And we actually broke off the test tower. It snapped in two because of the high winds up there. So we knew a wind turbine wasn't going to work there. And then we invested in a, a solar array in Carbondale, just down the valley from Aspen and Snowmass uh, on a college campus. And we put, them, put that in. And that was effective too, but it wasn't enough. And then, you know, Tom, we, we went out of, outside the box. We found a coal mine, which is 25 miles away from Aspen in Somerset, that frankly was uh, venting methane out of their coal mine so the miners would, could work in it. And that methane, of course, which is a very potent greenhouse gas, many times more potent than CO2, was just being vented into the atmosphere. And so we approached the owners of the mine saying, can we take the, the methane you're venting out of the mines and turn it into electricity, use it to power you know, electric generator uh, and create electricity uh, that way? And they went, and the miners, you know, they, they said, well, <clears throat> we don't really believe in this climate change stuff, but... You know, we hate to see a wasted resource. So sure, you go ahead and use that methane. <laughs> so we built a, a plant and we turned the methane into electricity and that offset 100% of Aspen Skiing Company's electricity needs for all their buildings, lifts, and snowmaking. And, and it also was profitable. It had a return, uh, you know, an IRR. So that was a $6 million project that we put in. And so it demonstrated that if you try hard enough, even in a ski area, you can figure out a way to run a green operation. You know, be responsible stewards of the environment, take care of your habitat, your water, your forests. But also, most importantly, is, is getting on renewable energy so that we're not contributors to climate change. That gives us a platform, and it is in Aspen, and I carry that platform forward a platform, a soapbox per se, to talk about what needs to happen and go to the halls of power in the, in the local governments, in the state governments, and frankly, to Washington, D.C., and talk to people about policy change that we need to, to save our planet. Uh, and we have a story to tell. Well, we fixed our own operation. Now we want you to you know, join us and, and do more. We need to do this on, at scale. Because frankly, Tom, you know, every ski area in the country could be running on 100% renewable energy and be really good stewards of the environment. We're not there today, but we could be, and we still would not make a dent in human-caused climate change. This nest must be done at an industrial scale, at a, at a global scale, right? This is a global issue. Uh, but I believe that as, as people from mountain towns uh, that love our natural environment, have made progress on greening our own operations, can be voices of reason in the debate about human class climate change and pushing for policies, you know, at the highest levels of government in order to facilitate real change. Uh, I think it's not only an opportunity, it's a responsibility that we have. Uh, And that isn't just our company, it's all of us together. Uh, You know, together we can be a very loud voice and uh, for good and to preserve these perfect mountain places for generations to come. So, you know, I, I definitely have a bit of a soapbox. I believe in this passionately, and I think we have an extremely important role as skiers and and snowboarders and mountain enthusiasts. 
Those are some fascinating examples. And I had read about the coal mine innovation that you came up with, which just seems brilliant. Climate change, sustainability, it is very, very complex to a lot of people and oftentimes contentious. Is there maybe a prioritization or are there some really key simple points that we as skiers and snowboarders can be aware of? I mean, what is the priority within the industry and the things that you look at, one, two, three, four, that are most important? That's a great question, Tom. And, you know, one of the very good things that's happened in the, in the mountain resort industry and actually through our industry association and NSAA, the National Skiers Association, They've come up with a really robust roadmap for how to tackle environmental sustainability in our industry. You know, a lot of work's been done, and so, and there's some real leaders uh, in the industry. You know, uh, Altera is a leader, Aspen Skiing Company is a leader, Vail Resorts is, is, is really on board as a leader, as are as Powder Corp, Boyne. You know, we've got a lot of leaders in, in our industry, and we've rallied around a set of a sort of action steps that we should all focus upon and, and, and make. It really starts, and I would say number one, and I've mentioned this previously, is energy. Being the move to renewable energy uh, to sustain operations, and that's to run our lifts, our buildings, our snowmaking systems, and everything on, on 100% renewable, or, or create enough energy in order to uh, offset your energy use. So that's number one. And I, you know, some really great things are happening. I mean, I told the story of, of the coal mine methane, but... I'm impressed, like, for example, in Utah, Rocky Mountain Power, the utility provider, is moving very aggressively to move their, the grid, the source of electricity, as fast to renewables as they possibly can, and to wean the power grid there off of fossil fuels, you know, coal, natural gas-fired plants, and move to renewables, wind and solar primarily. And, you know, uh, it's great to see that both economically uh, feasible right now but it takes real leadership at the utility provider level and at the state level to, to push those utilities and to support their work to, to shift to renewable energy. So ski areas, there's many ways you can do it, but you can't necessarily, if your source of electricity from your utility is not clean and it's coming from coal-fired or gas-fired power plants, it's not a, there's not a lot you can do, right? Because it's hard to generate that much electricity at your resort. You could generate it off-site, uh, you could buy, you know, have paid power agreements to buy the uh, solar and wind power that your utility providers get. But mostly you need to push them to green up their power supply. So working collectively, I think that's by far the number one priority is looking at your energy sources in mountain towns. Uh, there's a great cooperative move in the whole Park City Deer Valley area, you know, with a paid power agreement with Rocky Mountain Power to be operating on 100% renewable energy. I think that's just fantastic. Uh, there's moves in other places to do exactly the same thing. One in Lake Tahoe, where we own Squaw Valley and, and Alpine Meadows, and the whole Lake Tahoe Truckee area is moving to do exactly the same thing. There's a paid power agreement, so those resorts in the town can operate on 100% renewable energy. And those are things to be really proud of. So by far, in a way, to me, is focusing on, uh, on renewable energy sources, not only what you can do yourself, and to be efficient in how you use your energy. So going to energy efficiency is really important, right? So if you can have energy efficient buildings, uh, you may be electric, electric powered if your power is clean coming from the grid, 
Uh, if you can make your snowmaking systems more efficient, and there's been really good move in technology to make snowmaking much more efficient, uses a lot less energy, makes a lot more snow more quickly. Uh, and then, you know, but buildings and snowmaking are the big two. And you use a lot of electricity on lifts, too. And so making sure your power grid is, is green for lifts. Uh, that would be number one. Number two, in my opinion, actually is using that work, and I'll call it climate action, action and advocacy. You know, we as, you know, mountain enthusiasts and ski areas and skiers uh, you can use our voice to talk to others, to say, you know what, we've experienced climate change firsthand. And we're doing what we can in our town or in our, in our environment to clean it up. But we need you to help us and talk to politicians, talk to policymakers in a, in a calm and reasonable way to come up with joint solutions. These are not partisan issues, in my opinion. Climb, you know, taking action on cleaning up our energy grid and our energy supplies in this country to have a renewable, a renewable energy should never have been a, and should never be a partisan issue. We can clean up our environment, we can create jobs, and there's still gonna be a place for fossil fuels. You know, there is. We're not gonna completely wean ourselves off of that overnight. And so we're not anti-fossil fuel. There's a place for fossil fuels. They've created this economy that we have. But we have a really great opportunity to advocate for a clean energy economy in this country and around the world. Frankly, there's people even in the fossil fuel business, the oil and gas businesses and coal businesses that they recognize that they have to change. And the big fossil fuel companies are investing in renewable energy because they see the world changing. They're not, they're not stupid. Uh, they realize there's pressure on fossil fuels and they can't continue just to, you know, to burn them freely. The move to electric vehicles, you know, to, to renewable energy in our grid, uh, augment, you know, the, the affordability of solar and wind power uh, to augment our other, other power supplies are really important steps that we as skiers can advocate for. If you believe in this and you believe in, in human-caused climate change and doing something about it, then I urge you to speak up. And there are ways you can speak up. You can certainly write to your, you know, your elected official. You can, you can pick up the phone and call your congressman or congresswoman, your senator, and, and tell them what you think. The phone is very, very effective, by the way, Tom. Uh, signing a form letter is not nearly as effective, but if you pick up the phone and call your congresswoman or con congressman and tell them what you think about taking action on, on cleaning up our, our climate and, and getting weaned off fossil fuels, uh, they will take note. They will take notice. So number two would be advocacy. Number three, and it's hard to put them in order, but really it's about, you know, it's everything from uh, water resources, uh, to our forest health and habitat, making sure that we are operating our ski areas in our, in our, in our beautiful mountain places really responsibly. You know, uh, we want to make sure that we don't have uh, unchecked runoff off our mountains in the spring that are muddying the streams and, and hurting, you know, habitat for fish and other creatures. We want to make sure our forests are healthy, that we've, you know, we're, we take care of them so that we're not at risk for forest fires. We're not at worst at high risk for pine beetle epidemics, you know, by having a healthy forest. And we can do, you know, and work on our transportation too, because, and I would put that as number four, because people have to burn today fossil fuels to get to our ski areas to enjoy their, their favorite pastime. And they're driving a car, they're taking a bus, or they're flying on a plane or all of the above. 
So whatever you can do to be responsible yourself in your own lifestyle habits, you know, are you willing to drive less? You know, are you willing to not have a big truck if you don't need a big truck? Are you willing to look at a hybrid vehicle, you know, for your needs if it's mostly commuting between the city and the ski area? Uh, an all electric vehicle, uh, as the grid is starting to support that. You know, what can you do? Uh, you know, are you pushing for recycling? If you go a place to a place and there's no obvious place to recycle your glass and aluminum and it all goes in the trash in the landfill, speak up. It's saying, why do you not have recycling bins here? You know, ask the question. So I think that, Tom, you know, I start with energy, number one, action and advocacy, number two, really cleaning up our habitat where we do business, number three, and then thinking about what you can do personally in your own personal lifestyle habits to support all of the changes. We're with Altera Mountain Company leader, David Perry, and we'll be right back to talk more about the role of transportation as a major factor in sustainability. We'll be right back. Since I moved to Utah over 30 years ago, Jans in Park City has been my go-to for outdoor recreation gear. What has always impressed me about Jans was the staff knowledge and the amazing collection of notable outdoor brands. As we head into the spring and swap the skis for new recreational tools, it's time to think about mountain biking. The experts at Jans have the best gear and can also help you choose the best routes, whether it's springtime fat bike rides in the snow yet or picking a trail for your trip to Park City later this spring or summer. It's also an ideal time of year for fly fishing. Jans has long been the local leader for fishing gear and expertise. The many blue ribbon streams nearby are well known to Jans guides. Jans is your local shop for rods, reels, waders, and flies. Whether you plan to bike, hike, fish, or climb this spring and summer, Jans has you covered in style in Park City. Stop into Jans Park City stores or check out Jans.com in advance. Now let's join our guest David Perry on Last Chair to talk more about sustainability. I want to talk a little bit more about the transportation aspect. I mean, this is a problem that has multiple heads, and we have it in the Cottonwoods, uh, Little and Big Cottonwood. Colorado has it on the I-70 corridor where people are driving cars, sometimes by themselves, up to the resorts. And it has been interesting here to watch some of the changes we've seen over the last two years at Solitude and Brighton in Big Cottonwood, where UTA has stepped up the transportation in concert with the resorts. Do you see more partnerships like that to get more mass transit into the resorts? Yes, I do, Tom. I think it's essential. You know, we have to use our, our, our mass transit or our, our shared transit op, um, options, and we have to improve them. That's one way to reduce, you know, uh, our fossil fuel burning habits, right? You know, for example, you know, I'm, I'm in the uh, Aspen, Roaring Fork Valley of Colorado right now. And there's long been a, a free bus service for people staying between Aspen Highlands, Buttermilk and Snowmass. Uh, it's a skier bus and it's funded by the ski areas and, and taxes. Um, but skiers and riders, you know, and snowboarders can ride for free. And they've converted a big chunk of that fleet of the buses to uh, CNG or compressed natural gas. It's a much cleaner fuel than, than operating on diesel power. It's not complete. Uh, the whole fleet isn't on CNG, 
but you can operate, you know, buses, you know, from the whole Salt Lakes Valley up to the ski areas on compressed natural gas. And you've got a very clean alternative, Uh, even though it is natural gas, it's clean and it's quite efficient and it's a lot better than, than other sources of energy. And if you get people to park at park and ride lots, so they're not driving one or two people in a vehicle and then take the shuttle, that would be a big help. It's not easy. This is a, this is an automobile culture in this country, right? It's a, we're very proud of that. You know, I got my car, I got my two cars, my three cars, and I like to drive myself to my end destination, have the flexibility to get in my car and leave whenever I want. And, you know, getting all of us to park and get on a bus is hard. It's hard. But if we realize we're doing the right thing for our ski areas, the right thing for our environment, and we're really, you know, shoulder to shoulder with our fellow citizens to do the right thing, it's a sense of, a sense of social responsibility that I think that we all have and we share that we need to tap into to get people to do that kind of thing. Uh, I, mean, it's, it, I mean, even carpooling helps, right? Putting four or six people in, in a vehicle, you know, it reminds me of Aspen Highlands, which is, you know, one of my local ski areas. You could park for free there if you had four people in your car, you know, uh, instead of paying them to get into the parking lot. And so what do people do? Lots of people take the bus to the rec center and they stand out on the side of the road and people with only two or three people in their car stop and fill it up with four <laughs> so they can park for free. All right. It helps, right? It's a little bit, you know, so people don't, it, you know, it's, it's, is paid parking a good thing? Well, it's a deterrent to not doing other, you know, uh, other methods to get to the ski area. So the transportation piece is a big one. Air travel is another one that's not easy, but, you know, there is a move to renewable fuels too and other sources that instead of, uh, you know, pumped out of the ground, uh, that may be a future solution even for jet travel to have uh, fuels that are sustainably grown actually reduce emissions and reduce our dependency on digging uh, oil and gas wells. I loved your Aspen Highlands example. Maybe not exactly the advocacy we were hoping for, but maybe a start. I want to go back to the the bus service up Big Cottonwood. I mean, I've really enjoyed taking that. And the 15-minute frequency or 15 or 20-minute frequency has, has made it very practical. You don't have to plan your whole day around what time does the bus go. Uh, I know that the COVID year kind of threw a wrench in some of that, but what have you seen at Solitude? Has that been a pretty impactful program so far? Yeah, very much so. It's been huge for, for Solitude and for Brighton uh, to have have that service uh, and have the employees using the service, you know, with their UTC cards and, you know, the expansion of, of the lots at the, at the base of the canyon. That's very, very important. You know, having convenient places to park that are central uh, for people that still have to get from their home somehow to close as a central location and, and then getting on a really efficient, you know, uh, bus transport system to and from, that's a really big step in the right direction in setting that example. And Big Cottonwood Canyon is is a really good uh, example of, of how that's coming together nicely. I know there's been grand talk about, you know, more bigger, you know, uh, imagine more imaginative solutions to the transportation and in, in Utah, uh, but this is a good one for now. You know, that helps right now. 
Well, it's it's been a big help. We had uh, on the podcast a month or so ago Chris McCandless, who is a skier and a local developer who has actually a seemingly realistic proposal for a gondola system to go up Little Cottonwood, and that was a really interesting discussion with him. Uh, David, I want to talk about a topic you did mention earlier. It's not the sexiest one, but waste diversion. Uh, I know that this isn't off talk often talked about, but it is something that a number of resorts are really getting in on. Deer Valley, I know, is recycling now or composting almost 50% of its waste. Small area maybe, but how important is it in the big picture? I think it's part of a sustainable lifestyle. And I think that, you know, waste reduction and composting and recycling are really critical elements of living a sustainable lifestyle personally. But we as operators also have to provide that to make it seamless and easy to do. For example, if you're going to a, a restaurant at the mountain, let's make sure that uh, the plates, the cutlery, you know, the cups are either compostable or recyclable. And you've got easy to play, places to place them and you know what goes in compost and when you know what goes in recycling and it's efficiently taken away. So that, you know, you can really reduce your, you know, the waste and also the, uh, you know, the, ultimately it's reducing carbon, right? by, you know, not putting it in the landfill. So, yeah, I think that people need to change. Right now, in a lot of places, frankly, you'll go to a cafeteria, you'll get your plate of food, and there'll be plastic wrapping, there'll be packaging, there'll be plastic cutlery, a plastic cup uh, with a soft drink in it, and you throw it all in the trash. And it gets bundled up in plastic bags, goes in trucks, and goes to the landfill. Well, that's just tragic. You know, it's just so unnecessary. You know, we can reduce our... Uh, waste to landfill by massive amounts. 50% is a really good start. Targeting 50%, can we get to you know 90% reducing landfills? And we know that people landfills or dumps, as we always used to call them, they're 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 really sad places, right? But they're hidden away. They're not in front of our eyes. We don't see them. We don't we don't see or smell what's actually going on as we're just pushing dirt over piles of garbage in our mountain towns and in our communities. And reducing waste to landfill is something that's really important. And I think we can be leaders in mountain towns. You know, I attended a really great conference here before last in Park City called Mountain Town 2030 and was able to sit on a panel and talk about that with other, other ski companies. And it was on this panel was uh, Vail Resorts, Powder Corporation, Boyne Resorts, and Altera. And we all agreed on that panel and had a charter at the end of that conference that we were all committed together to work on sustainability practice, best practices in our industry uh, and to lead the way. And so that was a really encouraging time and encouraging conference. And that work along with what NSAA is doing, uh, one of the key components of that is reducing waste, uh, reducing our footprint and, and the amount of garbage that we produce. Uh, but the operator has to take the lead. And then we ask our customers to support us. Or ultimately, as a customer, you can ask for it and demand it. If, if you don't see a recycling bin and, and, why, and there's no composting at a ski area, go up to the manager and say, how come you're not composting? Why, why are you not recycling? Why is this going in the trash? And the more you raise your voice, even on small levels like that, the bigger the difference it makes. We all have to be the squeaky wheels on these, on these things. David, you talked a lot about the individual advocacy like that, that we all can do and how we can change our own personal habits. Are there any organizations or causes that we as skiers or, and snowboarders can support to help further this effort on a global scale? 
Yeah, I do believe there is. You know, I'm a big supporter of Protect Our Winters. You know, that's a nonprofit organization that is, is really committed to action on climate change. And it's, it was founded by, you know, Jeremy Jones, pro snowboarder. In its early days, you know, it was a bunch of snow sports athletes, you know, getting together, uh, making some noise and going to D.C., Washington, D.C., and, and visiting with elected officials there to talk about what was happening in the mountains. Uh, it's grown dramatically. Now it's a very professional nonprofit organization that's very well organized. It's been growing their membership dramatically, and it's all about taking action on climate. And it isn't just snow sports participants and enthusiasts now. They've expanded into the climbing community. They've expanded into the running community and, and you know, water sports and, you know, ultra running. And so Protect Our Winters uh, is an organization that we, as soon as we launched the Icon Pass and created it at the start of Altera, uh, we partnered with POW right out of the chute uh, as, a, as a key partner of ours because we really liked the work that they were doing. Uh, I've been on many missions with POW. You know, they're really good at distilling the science, you know, right down to really easy to understand uh, rationale. Because there's a lot of people, if you talk about climate change, still don't think that the science is settled, right? You have to understand that the science is 100%, 98.99% in favor of uh, hum- understanding that climate change is largely human cause. They settle the science. They've done studies on the economic impacts of not taking action, you know, in, in towns like Park City. You know, Park City has been a real leader uh, in, in studying the potential economic negative, negative economic effects of climate change. And then they, they bring athletes and gold medalists and business people to Washington, D.C. And I've gone on these missions and we knock on doors and we go and see senators and elect other and members of Congress on both sides of the aisle and tell them our story. And it's not confrontational. You know, we're not just pounding our fist on the table saying, you know, we need action here in DC to support if it's a Republican administration or a Democratic administration. Frankly, we spend more time in the Republican offices of Republican elected officials than the Dems. And we tell them, say, you know what? We understand that this is a difficult topic for you and you, and who elected you, but let us, let, let, let's couch it this way. and. Let's talk about what solutions we think could take action to get ourselves onto a clean energy economy and renewable power sources that isn't going to do anything to hurt any part of our economy. You know, it's actually economically positive. And if it has the side effect of, of slowing and stopping global climate change, well, that's a bonus. And, uh, you know, they've got, they've got a script, you know, at POW. And it's and it's it's a good script to talk to people without challenging you know their their belief systems. There's solutions to change that we think everyone can endorse. I mean, we could get into more detail about the gridlock in, in Washington, uh, which is a real problem to making you know um, progress on on climate policy. But you know, today, right now, we have an administration that is committed to action on climate change and reengaging with the Paris Accords. And and and, and uh, changing our uh, our energy supply in this country to a green energy economy and creating new jobs. So I think that's a very positive thing. I don't want it to be a partisan issue. I'd like to bring our Republican colleagues along with us on this one, uh, and so we can all lock arms and say this is good for the planet and it's good for our economy all in one. It's a win-win-win. Um, that's what we'd like to achieve. So anyway, that's a, that's a, a little bit long-winded to say that Protect Our Winters is an organization. If you haven't joined, 
go to protectourwinners.org and, and join up and, and, and do what you can. Take the pledge and, uh, and they'll give you the tools to do what you need to do. Well, it's good counsel. And, you know, the way I've always approached this with people, climate change can get very difficult and can get very scientific. And I don't really understand all of that. But it's just like as skiers, we take care of our skis. We take care of our home. And we ought to be good stewards of the snow on which we ski. You're, you're 100% right, Tom. And that, that's, a, that's a great way to approach it. And it's like, okay, not everyone goes up to the mountains 100 days a year, right? And, and notices that winter is getting shorter. You know, if you're in a city and you listen to the, the weather on the news, we talk about people celebrate the fact that there's winter shorter in the cities. They don't like, you know, not a lot of cities love, love more snow and snowstorms and gridlock and traffic. You know, I've had gone to weather summits where, where uh, television weather folks have come and we said, can you please change your language? There should be no such thing as a bad snowstorm. Exactly. Take that out of your vernacular, please. Uh, I think all snowstorms are ultimately good things, right? They are. But yeah, you know, uh, you're, you take care of, uh, you know, your house. You take care of your family. You take care of the, the recreational part of your life that's important to you, and that's the mountains. And whether you're hiking in the summer or mountain biking or skiing or snowboarding in the winter, you want to take care of that too. You want that to be just the way it is today for your great-grandchildren, right? So what can you do today to take care of things for your next generations and, and really to put it on your own shoulders to say, you know what, this isn't just about me. It's about the next generation and the generation after that. Do we really want to be the ones that have the weight of messing up this planet on our shoulders and didn't do anything about it? Really? Is that what's, what we want to take to our grave? I don't think so. I think we want to do our everything we can in our power to make things better for the next generation than they were for us. Take that to heart, and I think we'll uh, we'll do good work. David, one more serious question, and then we'll move on to some fun stuff. We've talked about a lot, really good counsel and really good direction. If we all band together as skiers and riders and the industry alongside of us, what will the future look like for ski resorts 25 or 50 years from now? You know, there's two, that's a great question, Tom. You know, if we band together and the industry is banding together and skiers and snowboarders are starting to band together, we need to lock arms with fellow outdoor enthusiasts, right? There's a lot of people that just love walking through the meadows of wildflowers or hiking or birds or just being in nature. Uh, we need to lock arms with, with those folks as well. And there's two possible futures, Tom. You know, there's a, the future I like to believe is possible, which is us coming together within a, sh a short number of years, uh, reducing our, our, our CO2 emissions and our carbon, carbon footprint to a degree where we can slow and then stop and then even reverse climate change in the coming years and decades. Uh, that that's a global effort, right? But we need to do our part. And so if we can do that and we can do it, attack that with a sense of urgency today because it is time. It's almost too late, right? But, so we really need to act together to do what we can do individually to lobby for change and to talk to elected officials about the policies that we have as a country. If we can do that, we can turn this around and then our mountains will have long winters. We'll have abundant snowfall. We'll be able to play and go to our mountain playgrounds and enjoy the, enjoy the pristine mountain environment. And the benefit of clean water and clean air and less smog in our cities, you know, and all of those things that go along with it, 
will make us healthier as people, as individuals, and, and the health of our families. We'll be less prone to disease with by breathing clean air, drinking clean water, and living in a clean environment. Uh, and I think it's just better for humanity. So I like to think that that positive picture of the future is absolutely possible. If you want to go on to the dark side, if, we're, if we don't band together and we don't take this seriously and urgently, uh, this, this existential threat of climate change, catastrophic climate change, which we're really on the verge of, and you know what? We start to see, you know, the, the melting of Greaseland and the solar ice caps, the rising of the seas, you know, the inundation of our coastal cities. Uh, we start to see massive drought in, in areas that are just dry today become deserts. We start to see impacts on agriculture. You know, we destroy our oceans. And so the oceans are no longer a source of food and life for our planet. And we start to, you know, as our population grows beyond 8 billion, you know, we can't feed our planet because of climate change and understand the connections between those two. So there's a dark picture of the future that I, I don't like to believe is that we're going to allow it to happen as, as human beings, because we have the power to make that change. We have the power to clean up our environment, to reduce, get off our dependency of fossil fuels, reduce the carbon output, reduce CO2 in our atmosphere and stabilize our climate. It's in our hands. We have the power to do that. And uh, so uh, I, I like to think that we have a bright future ahead, but I, part of the motivation is to avoid the really dire, dark future, which is possible. Well, David, we all appreciate what you are doing, what Altera is doing. And interestingly enough, in a very competitive landscape, all of the resorts around the country and the resort companies are doing. We're going to lighten it up a little bit now in a section that I call Fresh Tracks, just to learn a little bit more about you before we close off this episode of Last Chair. David, when you are not out skiing or snowboarding, what's the favorite, out what's the favorite outdoor activity for you and your family? Yeah, mountain biking by far and away. Mountain biking and hiking, alpine hiking, uh, getting up in the alpine above treeline wherever we can. Uh, but, you know, my wife and I are, are big mountain bikers. Uh, we have two daughters and both in their 20s. Uh, one is a, a mountain landscape photographer, a professional, uh, is doing great. And our, our, our youngest daughter is still in university in our senior year. Uh, we're outdoor enthusiasts in all, in all seasons. So we get together as a family, we mountain bike in the summer, we hike in the summer, we ski in the winter, and we, we are passionate artists and photographers uh, in our family as well. So the, the two go hand in hand. You know, I wanted to ask you about photography. I think you probably know that you and I do both share that passion for photography. How did you pick that up and what's your, how do you manifest that passion as a photographer? Yeah, I learned it from my dad. You know, my dad was a was actually a Protestant minister uh, in Canada, but his number one hobby was photography. And so, if I wanted to hang out with my dad, I quickly learned that I would pick up photography with him, spend time with my dad, uh, taking the pictures, and then going down to the basement to the dark room, you know, and developing the film and making the prints, you know, under the orange light. And so, I learned as as a kid hang out with my dad and go through the whole process of, of creating photographic images as, as a form of art. He was also a painter and a, a really accomplished uh, watercolor uh, artist as well. So I, I got it early. And then with our, my, my god, daughters, uh, when they were four and six years old, I bought them their first Nikon FM camera. 
an old manual camera and taught them about uh, aperture and shutter speed and uh, ASA or ISO today and how to take a picture. And they did it with me. They hung out with their dad. And uh, we did it as, you know, father, daughter, and my, my wife along the way as well, who's actually a great photographer as well. And so it really passes from generation to generation with us. And gosh, lo and behold, my oldest daughter is now a professional photographer, which uh, uh, I didn't expect to happen, but that's the, the path she's chosen. And so we like outdoor photography, nature, you know, landscape, uh, beautiful outdoor places, and, uh, and people enjoying those places. That's what we enjoy. You know, it's funny, I'm chuckling because in the cabinet behind me, I have an old Nikon FM sitting in there, just one I just hung on to all these years. David, the most exotic place that you've skied around the world? Oh, my. Most exotic. Well, I've skied some pretty wild places. You know, when I lived in the Banff Lake Louise area, I, I made a habit of climbing and skiing uh, couloirs in the summer. First ascents, as they call them today. We didn't bother to catalog them. We weren't trying to bag first ascents, but uh, we put our skis on our back and we hiked with uh, ropes, ice axes, and crampons up these cool wires in the Canadian Rockies. Uh, the most uh, famous spot that I, I was one of the first people that actually skied was it's called the Three Four Couloir, and it's at Moraine Lake in uh, Banff National Park, and it's a scene that's actually on the back of the Canadian twenty dollar bill. Uh, it's, a, it's a very famous scene, and there's a narrow couloir there between the third and fourth peaks that I climbed and skied in my early 20s. Uh, I would say that was fairly exotic. Uh, I, I did not understand the risks. <laughs> and wasn't particularly well prepared. Uh, we were roped together. We were stepping on a rope with our crampons and getting tangled up and trying to ski with a rope. And, oh, my gosh, we were, we were a bunch of idiots, but we uh, survived. Yeah, so that was, you know... Climbing and skiing, uh, cool wires in the Canadian Rockies, I, I guess, would probably qualify as the most exotic. That'll definitely qualify. And it's nice to have that one checked off on the list as opposed to one that's on your bucket list yet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, I've, I've been fortunate enough to ski in some incredibly beautiful places. You know, I have to say the Zermatt, you know, the Zermatt and around the Matterhorn is so spectacularly beautiful that I've had wonderful experiences there. Went with a guide. I was smart enough to hire a guide there. Smart um, move. Smart move. Yeah. yeah. So you have lived and worked in some amazing places as well. Whistler, Blackcomb, Banff Lake, Louise, Aspen. If you were to, but you haven't lived in Utah yet. If you were a ski bum, where would you love to work and ski here in Utah? Oh, wow. I love Utah. I, I, I've been traveled and skied in Utah a ton and mountain biked a ton in Utah. We, we go to Moab, Canyonlands, and the Maze, and, you know, places of mountain biking. The issue there is we're kind of torn. I, I would love to live in the, the Moab area or even around Escalante and Boulder, Utah, because of the mountain biking and the hiking and the canyoneering. It's not close enough to skiing, though, so I, I, I'm really torn. You know, I, I, I do love uh, the Park City area. I really do. Uh, you know, it's such a thriving, beautiful community and, and a beautiful little town and great skiing. Frankly, you know, for the, from the skiing perspective, I'd, I'd rather be in Little or Big Cottonwood Canyon, if I'm brutally honest. Skiing Altabird, uh, I love that. And I love skiing Solitude and Brighton uh, there. We own Solitude, of course. And uh, gosh, one of my best runs in Utah last year was a run I took with uh, uh, with the team there and uh, skied um, Black Forest Glades in Honeycomb Canyon at Solitude. Oh, and I had one of the best runs of the year right there in Honeycomb. And uh, 
So I do love Big Cottonwood Canyon. I love Big Little Cottonwood Canyon, but I don't actually see myself living in those canyons. So I think Park City uh, area uh, would be a great place to live. Well, you're invited over here anytime. And do you have a favorite Utah craft beer? Oh, gosh, craft beer. I, I do. You know, and I actually drink it uh, regularly when I go to Moab um, and wherever I can find it. It's by Red Rock, and it's called Frolic or Frolich. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, L-I-C-H, Frolic Pilsner. Uh, that's one of my favorite beers of all time. Uh, it comes in a quart bottle, which I really like, a slightly larger bottle. Nice yellow label. That's delicious beer. So that Red Rock Froelich Pilsner is my favorite. Not just in Utah, anywhere I can get it. Yeah, they do some great beers at Red Rock. And then finally, the last question that I pose to all of our last chair guests, groomers, moguls, glades, or powder? (laughs) Well, once upon a time, it was moguls Um, when I was younger. And I think knees have a certain number of moguls in them. Uh, it's, it's powder. By the Uh, way, you would have been the first person, you would have been the first person to ever pick moguls. Oh my gosh. Well, I was, I was in the moguls all the time when I was younger and I I still love it. And and I love doing high speed GS turns and soft bumps. That's one of my favorite things to do. But yeah, you know, if I get a powder slope, you know, or a heli ski pitch, uh, that I can ski, that's, that's a dream. Well, David Perry, thank you for all that you're doing and especially for sharing some time here on Last Chair to help educate us a little bit and hopefully motivate us to be advocates like you. Thank you so much. Well, I'm re- deeply appreciative of you having me on the show, uh, Tom, and for asking these really important questions uh, about climate and how it impacts the skiers and riders and mountain enthusiasts. This is such an important topic. I'm really, really honored that you asked me on the show. Thank you. Thank you. David Perry, thanks for joining us on Last Chair. Sustainability involves all of us, and a big thanks to David Perry for joining us today and for his leadership across the entire ski industry. Park City is a remarkable community with a wide range of outdoor recreational opportunities. Since 1972, White Pine Touring has been serving locals and visitors alike all along the Wasatch Back in Park City and on up to the High Uintas. If you're visiting this spring or summer, think about a lesson or a local tour with one of White Pine's knowledgeable guides. Be it road biking, mountain biking, rock climbing, or hiking, there are some amazing natural resources in the area and White Pine's guides know them well. Need gear? White Pine has top-line rental equipment for any adventure. Spring is also a great time to get your own bike tuned up to be ready as more trails and roads open for the season. Visiting Park City and looking for a fun new adventure? Check out White Pine Touring for its rental gear or guided trips. On a personal note, there are a ton of adventure opportunities from the Wasatch Range all the way out to the High Uintas. White Pine is the place to go. Check out whitepinetouring.com or give the experts a call at 435-649-8710. The Ski Utah Last Chair podcast is brought to you by High West Distillery. Follow our whiskey adventure on all social media platforms at Drink High West. And remember, sip responsibly. High West Whiskey, 46% alcohol by volume. High West Distillery in Park City, Utah. I hope you've enjoyed Last Chair this season. 
I have had a great time bringing you some amazing stories this year with individuals who are a part of the threat of the sport here in Utah. We've explored some very meaningful topics like talking to David Perry today on sustainability. We're going to take a short summer break, but expect to be back again this fall with another season of Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast. To close out the season, let's turn it over to our good friends, Pixie and the Party Grass Boys, one more time. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Tom Kelly for Last Chair, presented by High West. Have fun. It is a great day to ski. Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast.